For of his own will he hath begotten us by his word of truth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For of his own will hath he begotten us by the word of truth, that we might be some beginning of his creature. That's the 18th verse of James 1. It's lines 3, 4, and 5 in your program. These words should um, startle us to the degree that we're catechized, we know the creed. Um, It's talking about God the Father, right? Dearly beloved, every best gift and every perfect creature is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change nor shadow of alteration. For of his own will, he, God the Father, hath begotten us, Already, we can just stop right there. So, when, when we acknowledge our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, we honor him as the only begotten Son. Right? Unigenitum. There were, for many years, even worse translations um, than what most people um, hear. And that very bad translation frequently referred to our Lord as God's only Son. The only Son of God. That's egregiously wrong because we really are sons and daughters of God by adoption. We're not begotten of God. We're adopted by God. But we really are sons and daughters of God the Father. What's unique and absolutely unique is that God the Son is begotten of God the Father. We are created by God. Right? We were begotten of our parents, right? Of the same substance, the same nature. We came from them. We came from our mother and father. We're begotten of them, born of them. But we're created by God, redeemed by God, justified by God, adopted by God, sanctified by God. Those are all very precise uses of those words. So when we go back to the letter of James, we see that he's using this word because we can look at the Latin and it's it's genoitnos. God has begotten us by the word of truth. We know that he's using these words to, to reveal something um, outside of the precise technical meanings that we've attributed to, to these letters. But still, it should capture our attention. What is he saying here? God the Father of his own will has begotten us by the word of truth, who is Christ, that we might be some beginning of his creature.
the word of God here is inviting us to dwell on a mystery that's, that has many facets. That salvation through Christ is predestined. The incarnation of Christ was predestined. Adoption through Christ is predestined. Not anyone in particular, but salvation through Christ is predestined. Our rising above the level of of perfect creature, predestined. We're not begotten of God, we're created by God, but God the Son being begotten of God the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from their love, as God in his perfect unity, perfect majesty, perfect completeness, And when by God's own free will, creation happens and human beings are created, the creation of man, male, and female, the creation of every human being is inseparable from salvation through Christ being predestined. St. James is, is teasing us into recognizing this intimate relationship that we have with God the Son. Because he's, he will come into the world not simply to cleanse us, to exonerate us, to satisfy our punishment, to restore us to a previous state. He's come to bring about our becoming sons and daughters through adoption. He's, he's coming to bring about our sharing in the divine life. To receive Christ who is begotten of God the Father. To become like Christ who is begotten of God the Father. St. James continues, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man worketh not the justice of God. Wherefore, casting away all uncleanness and abundance of malice with meekness, receive the ingrafted word. ingrafted word which is able to save your souls. Again, there are our familiar ways of of describing our relationship with with God, specifically our relationship with Christ and and St. James's Beautifully, delicately, just twisting it upside down just to reveal something else in this mystery. 
the engrafted word. How, how, how does sacred scripture, especially the New Testament, use this concept of grafting? Christ is the vine and we are the branches. We're reminded in the epistles, the natural branches fell off. They were dead. They were pruned. We have been grafted on to the vine. And don't assume that this grafting means that you are forever permanently in good grace. No, we could also lose life and die and be cut off from God. We are grafted onto him. We are adopted. But St. James is is saying, with meekness, receive the ingrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Christ will be imparted to you. The word of God will be imparted to your soul and will change you. There's a varieties of <clears throat> relationships between organisms in the natural world that is worth visiting just briefly, not too graphically. Admittedly, it was in freshman year of biology, honors biology, that we were, we were taught about mutualism. And there, there are two forms of mutualism that are very familiar to us. There's that symbiotic mutualism where both organisms benefit and that's happy and you imagine a bird on the back of a water buffalo. You imagine a remora on the belly of a whale and they both benefit each other and isn't, isn't it great? And they've, they've adapted their, even their, their physiology is adapted to each other. So perfect is God's creation. And then there's another kind of relationship which is beneficial to one and harmful to the other, which is a relationship of a parasite to a host. Sounds terrible and gross. Um, but honestly, what's terrible and gross and admittedly most memorable from that 15-year-old teenage brain wasn't the parasite but the saprophyte. Saprophytes are really icky. They're, they're the organisms that live off the decaying flesh of dead organisms, which is um, nothing we'll talk about further. <laughs> but you've got symbiosis and you have parasitism. Now, parasitism sounds already pretty bad, even though we know it's not the worst. Some parasites we even like, we have to admit. Our favorite parasite probably is mistletoe. It's an obligate hemiparasitic plant. It has to have a host to graft onto, so it's obligate. And it's not completely parasitic. It actually does some of its own photosynthesis, draws some water nutrients from the host tree or shrub. And so mistletoe can um, exist in a way which doesn't seem to harm its host too much. In some cases, like in the juniper tree, it can even seem, it can appear to benefit its host. Sometimes mistletoe completely replaces the cap of the, of the juniper tree. And with the berries and the flowers, it, it can result in greater visitation from birds and resulting potentially in greater uh, uh, temporary benefit to the juniper tree, which can have more berries as a result of this bird activity. 
Why do I mention that? Because sometimes we are juniper trees where we think we're bearing fruit, we think we're good, um, good people like us, uh, our prayers seem to be answered, when perhaps uh, the case may simply be that we're not obeying God's commandments and doing what pleases him. Uh, we just simply happen to be successful because of our vanity or be successful because of our vices and happen to um, uh, gain the good favor of good people whose judgment we would usually trust. So don't be a juniper tree. And then there are other relationships. There's amensalism, where one, where the host is unaffected, but the other uh, suffers and dies. Which sounds um, just pathetic, right? It's just a, not, no one benefits anything from that situation. It's easier to see that in the plant kingdom rather than the animal kingdom, where you have, imagine in a benign way, a big tree with lots of shade, and it kills the little trees underneath its shade. The big tree doesn't benefit in any way from the death of the, of the saplings. Or imagine a black walnut tree that's secreting poison into the ground. Again, doesn't. That's a more competitive rather than passive form of amensalism. But what's really fascinating is this highest level of mutualism, even to me more amazing than, than symbiosis, which is called in the scientific community commensalism, which simply comes from that Latin word which means to eat together, to share a table together. And in commensalism, this is what happens. The host is unaffected. But the other organism benefits. And so our, our Lord doesn't benefit from our praise and worship and love and obedience. He deserves to be praised and honored and obeyed and worshiped. He did create the universe out of love for the glorification of the Holy Trinity, but it's not as though God gets bigger or greater or gains something by it. It's all the effusion of love. It's all free. Who benefits from this? Certainly not irrational creatures that will one day cease to exist. But those rational creatures that freely and forever love him, serve him, and obey him the good angels, and good souls. God doesn't benefit from it. We benefit from this. And we're changed by this. Not just spiritually, but our complete being is changed by the grace of God. How else do you explain miracles that work? We are changed physically by the grace of God. We're changed interiorly, by the grace of God. And all of this has been on purpose. None of this is accidental. None of this is something that God hadn't thought about from the, from the very beginning of creation. 
So in a beautiful way, we're reminded of, of layers of elegance that are flowing from this altar where we consume our Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We're not, we're not, we're not the parasites who are killing him and deriving benefit from it. He is resurrected. He is alive. Death and evil and sin have no claim on him. He allows us to benefit. And he changes us. He not only comes into us with, with grace, encouragement, inspiration, blessing, healing. He, his purpose is to change us. To be grafted into us. To change our spiritual DNA. To make us like God. The only begotten one dwells in us. We are no longer merely creatures. We are, we are something that either caused the, the trembling and love of the good angels or the envy of the bad ones. Just before we turn to the altar, the prayer of the secret will give some expression to this mystery. O God, who by the holy intercourse of this sacrifice does make us partakers of the one supreme Godhead, grant, we beseech thee, that as we know thy truth, so we may follow it by worthy lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.